Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us how Noah prepared an ark to the saving of his house and how the Lord Jesus Christ paid our ransom and redeemed us for himself. This message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org. Now, here's some highlights from this week's messages. That's why we need to be in a crying out mode all the time, crying out. God says, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast and creeping things. God is not a sinful man. Now here's Tom Cantor as we continue our study and expository message from Genesis every Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday. Now turn back to Genesis 6, and here we come to another amazing statement that is in the end of verse 6, where it's talking about God, and it says here, it grieved him at his heart. It grieved God at his heart? Grief, we're talking about grief of heart here. Grief of heart? I mean, we know what grief of heart is. We understand that. Grief of heart comes when we experience a personal loss, a great loss, like someone has died, and like a spouse has died, or a son has died, or a daughter has died. And that grief of heart is very well understood by us. It's terrible. And it goes through phases, the grief of heart does. First, there's the shock phase. That's the part when the news first comes of the death. And then that's the part where there's this overwhelming numbness, like you've been knocked out. That's the shock phase. And then the next in the grief of heart is the denial phase. That's the part where you say, it can't be, it's just a bad dream. I'm going to wake up from it soon. And sometimes there's the anger phase. I remember this when Mike Johnson spoke of the death of his sister, Faye Johnson. And he said that when he'd flown down from San Francisco and walked into the house where her corpse was, that he was wondering what he would feel. And he said anger. He was just angry with death itself for taking a, his sister. Then there's the grief of heart brings the emptiness phase, the emptiness where there's overwhelming feeling of emptiness, you know, the hollow feeling in the stomach and the achy feeling in the chest, you know, this pain in the heart and this longingness because of the emptiness for the return, you know, if I sit here in front of this door, I know she'll walk through that door. You know, for a moment, I thought I saw him sitting in the chair. I thought I heard him. I still smell him on the pillow. I can feel him. That's the emptiness, the emptiness phase. And then last, there's the sadness phase, just the grief, the overwhelming sadness, lots of tears. When I was in the summer of 1970 at Hilton Davis Chemical Company in Cincinnati, Ohio, I had been hired a few months before as a salaried, non-union uh, laboratory technician. That was my job. And so what happened? In the summer of 1970, the plant went on strike. And so everybody who was non-union, which was me and so a lot of others, we had to work 14-hour days. And it was an ugly strike. And it was especially hard on one man, the plant manager. And the plant manager, he'd worked with those guys for 20 years. And they were like his family 
And now they're cursing him from the sidewalk, harassing his family where they had to put police at his family's home. The same guys he went to the bar with every day for lunch. Now they hate him. And two months into the strike, and we got the news, he died of a massive heart attack. Why? Well, we all knew why he died. Grief of heart. So we know what grief of heart is. And grief of heart is what people go through. But God, with grief of heart, now that's strange. God would make himself vulnerable that he could be grieved in his heart, like us. What man could do could make God grief, could grieve him at his heart, a pain in God's heart. We think of God as the creator king. He's the creator king. Well, we can visualize God with wrath, but not with pain in his heart. That's peculiar to us when we read this phrase. It's very peculiar because we don't think of God that way. We don't think of the creator king with grief in his heart, a pain in God's heart. I guess we don't know who the creator king is. That statement, it grieved him at his heart. It's just odd to us because we think of God the creator king, as far removed and isolated from man. That's how we think of him. We never imagined that little puny, insignificant man could cause the creator king to have pain in his heart. Can't imagine that. Pain in the creator's heart caused by man. Well, we think of God as great grandeur, stature, and power and great authority in every word such authority that things and beings they owe their existence to what hebrews 1 3 calls the word of his power the word of his power we think of the word of his power we've been studying that all those let there be and there was verses in Genesis 1, Genesis 1-3. And God said, let there be light. And there was light, Genesis 1-11. God said, let the earth bring forth grass, the herb yielding seed, the fruit tree yielding fruit after its kind. And it says, and it was so. One fourteen of Genesis says, let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons, for days and your sun, moon, stars. And that happened. Genesis 1.20, God said, Let the waters bring forth abundantly the moving creature that life, the fowl that flies above the earth in the open firmament of heaven. Genesis 1.24, God said, Let the earth bring forth the living creature after his kind, and the cattle and creeping thing, beast of the earth after his kind. And it was so, God said. But when we read in Genesis 6, 6, that this same one, the creator king, is grieved in his heart, that surprises us. That's not what we expect. So the question is, who really is he? Who really is the creator king? To Who is this one who can be grieved in his heart? Maybe he's not who we thought he was. But we got a glimpse that he was odd or peculiar or not how we expected because it says in Genesis 2-7 that he didn't speak man's existence into being as he did for all the others. It says there in Genesis 2-7, And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostrils, it says nostrils, the breath of life, and man became 
a living soul. That surprises us. We think of God speaking the earth into existence, the stars, light, by the word of his power. But we don't think of God as getting off of that throne of power and getting down and and forming with his hand out of the dust, man. And then putting his mouth over the nostrils of man and breathing into him his breath of life. That's strange. That's strange to us. That's not how we think. But then we read about the Creator God in John 1, 3 through 4, and we find out the Creator God is the Lord Jesus Christ because it says, All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. And then it says, in him was life, and the life was the light of man. In him was life, and so he breathed into man the breath of life, and we get it. But we read that the Lord Jesus Christ is this great creator God, and he put his mouth over man's nostrils and breathed him the breath of life. That's not what we expect. And we read about this creator God that when a woman was caught in the very act of adultery, and thrown down in front of him. And we can imagine how she must have looked. Torn garments, hair that's all messed up, just thrown down there, a mess. And it says that in John 8, 30-4, And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken at adultery, and when they had set her in the midst, they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken at adultery in the very act. And to that sinful woman, he says in John 8, 11, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. He said that to that woman, an immoral, adulterous woman, the creator king, who we think is removed from man and isolated from man. And here's this woman caught in the adultery and we see him having compassion on her. And we see him forgiving her. You know, most kings don't know anything about common man. But this creator king is not who we expect. And when we read about the creator king, that on a hot day in Israel, when his prophet Jonah was so discouraged and depressed to the point of death. Turn to it. In Jonah 4.6, please. Here we are in Jonah 4.6. It's outside of Nineveh. It's a very, very hot day. And God does something for his prophet. It says in Jonah 4, 6, it says here that the Lord God prepared a gourd. It says, okay, God can do that. He's God. He can do what he wants. He's a great creator, so he creates a gourd. And he made it to come up over Jonah. Okay, now we ask the question, why? Why did that? That it might be a shadow over his head to deliver him from his grief. So Jonah was exceedingly glad of the gourd. It was a hot day. Because that's not what we expect from the creator king. Caring about Jonah's temperature. (laughs) Caring about Jonah's depression. His pout. So much that the creator king miraculously creates a large gourd. Why? that it might be a shadow over his head to deliver Jonah from his grief. The Creator God has compassion on Jonah's grief. That's the Creator King caring for Jonah. Guess we didn't know who the Creator King was. 
We thought the Creator King was so far removed, so isolated from man. But then we see him in John 14, 1 through 3. He says, Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. You believe in God. Believe also in me. And then he says, In my Father's house, he explains, are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. And then he says, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then I'll come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. We read about this place in Revelation 21, 21, where it says, And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Every several gate was of one pearl, and the street of the city was pure gold, as transparent as it were transparent glass. So we're troubled at the thought of dying. And questions haunt us. This is the question in the hospice and the cancer ward, the most question that's ever asked to any chaplain. What's going to happen to me after I die? That's the question. It haunts, where am I going to be after I leave this earth? What will happen to me? Will I be safe? And the Creator King tells us not to be troubled because He's prepared a house for us. And He's going to not assign some angel, but come himself and bring us there. That's the creator king? guess we didn't know the creator king. We thought the creator king was so far removed, so isolated from man. But then in Revelation 21, 4, it says, And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes, and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall be there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. We have sorrows. We have a lot of things to cry about. We can't imagine the Creator King himself wiping tears from our eyes. That's the Creator King. We thought the Creator King was so far removed and isolated from man. Hosea thirteen fourteen. We read about the Creator King here. And here he's speaking again to the great, great fear of man. The great enemy of man to whom he is powerless. There's not a hope that anyone can stand against this foe. And that's the grave and that's death. But he says in Hosea 13, 14, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. O death, I will be thy plagues. O grave, I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. In other words, I'm not going to think twice about it. We fear the grave. We fear its power. We feared where the grave is going to take us. We never imagined that the Creator King would save us from the grave. Guess we didn't know. Tom, that was an interesting verse in Hosea chapter 13, verse 14. Who is the I, though, that is speaking from Hosea 13, 14, where it says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave? You know, that is a great question because the I is the key to the whole verse. Because the verse is all about the I, what the I will do. And four times he says, I will, I will, I will, I will. I will ransom, I will redeem, I will be thy plagues, I will be thy destruction. So the key really is to understand who is the I who's going to do all these marvelous things. And the answer is given up a few verses before where the I is identified in verse 4, Hosea 13, 4, yet I am the Lord. 
thy God from the land of Egypt, and thou shalt know no God but me, for there is no Savior beside me. So who is the I? He is identified as the Lord. That's Jehovah, Jehovah Jesus. I am Jehovah. He says, I am the Lord, thy God, from the land of Egypt. Now we go all the way back in our mind to the land of Egypt, and we remember that there in the land of Egypt was the Jewish people in a helpless and a hopeless situation. They were, uh, they were under the, the complete tyranny of the Egyptian people. They were being slowly exterminated by the death of the boys, of the male children as they were born. And they they had absolutely no hope whatsoever of getting out of that situation. Even Moses, when he first went to go visit them and killed the Egyptian who was beating another one of his fellow Hebrews, and he was chased out hopelessly as a murderer and stayed out of the country for 40 years. So what we see there about the Jewish people in Egypt was that they were under a tyranny that they could not deliver themselves from. No way. They They were helpless. They were hopeless. And he says, the Lord God says, I am the Lord God from the land of Egypt. What does it mean? It means that when when the Jewish people were helpless, when the Jewish people were hopeless, God appeared. And God appeared on the scene on the scene to give them the help of God and to give them the hope of God. And with God, they were able to come out of Egypt by nothing that they did themselves. They were not responsible for one of those 10 plagues. They were only the recipients of the release. All of those 10 plagues, which was the power that broke the hand of the Egyptians that was holding the Jewish people, came 100% from the Lord God. So when he says, I am the Lord thy God from the land of Egypt, that's supposed to say something very, very important to them. It's supposed to tell them that when you were your helpless condition. When you were in your hopeless condition, I, the Lord, am the one who took you out of Egypt by my strong hand, breaking their strong hand. And then he said, thou shalt know no God but me. In other words, they were in the land of Egypt, which was a land full of false gods. And he said, Put them all out of your mind, cast them off, because now you've seen that there is only one God, the God that delivered you from the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, that God. And so therefore, you are to be totally divorced from every God that you knew about or knew or whatever. In Egypt, thou shalt have no God but me. And then God says, there is no Savior but me. There is no Yeshua but me, as the Hebrew word is. There is no Jesus but me. In other words, in this verse, God is identifying himself as Jesus, as the word Yeshua is when it says there's no Savior but me. There is no Yeshua but me. There is no Jesus but me. There is no Savior beside me. So God says, I'm the one that delivered you. I am your Savior. And that's the one who is speaking in the great 
eye here, which is so important to see in Hosea 13, 14, where this one who delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians, this one who identifies himself as God the Savior, is the one who says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death, O death. I will be thy plagues, O grave. I will be thy destruction. Repentance shall be hid from mine eyes. Who is that? That's the Lord God Almighty. That's Jehovah. That's Jehovah Jesus as he identified himself as no Savior but me. These are definitely powerful uh, verses from Hosea chapter 13, and clearly they're being spoken to the Jewish people, but does this also apply to the non-Jewish believers? You know, this is a really great question, because clearly this is being spoken to the Jewish people, the Jewish people that were redeemed, but the question really is very valid. So, what does that leave us? What are we, chopped liver? What, how do we get benefit from all of this? That's there. How does this work for us as non-Jewish believers? Okay. Now, Romans eleven seventeen is the key to the answer to this question of, are all these promises, are all these statements for me? Because in Romans eleven seventeen, it speaks about the position of the non-Jewish believer where it says, and if some of the branches be broken off, and that's the Jewish people, if some of the branches be broken off, and thou, being a wild olive tree, wert graft in among them, and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree. So this verse is speaking about the Jewish people as Some of the branches, some of the Jewish people, were broken off, and then the Gentile believer is spoken of as thou being a wild olive tree were grafted in among them. See, these are very important words when it says you were grafted in among them and with them partakest of the root and the fatness of the olive tree. Who's the root and the fatness? That's the Lord Jesus Christ. So this olive, this, this olive tree, he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. We are the branches, and he is the main stock there, the Lord Jesus Christ is. And the Jewish people who rejected him are spoken here as some of the branches that were broken off. And the Gentile believer is spoken of as a wild olive tree that is graft in. But what's important is it says that's graft in among them and with them, not separate from them, not isolated from them, but among them and with them. And the very, very important word is the word partakest, partakest. So in other words, when we look at a verse, which is a wonderful verse, in Hosea 13, 14, where it speaks about being ransomed from the power of the grave, being redeemed from death, And we ask the question, can we as non-Jewish believers partake of this great promise? And the answer from Romans 11, 17 is a resounding yes, because of the word partakest. Thou being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them partakest of the root and fatness of the olive tree. That's why Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ can never turn to the non-Jewish believers in the Lord Jesus Christ and to say, well, you're second-rate citizens. You don't get to to, to, the position that we get to. Not at all. Because God has grafted in 
the wild olive tree, Gentile believers, uh, graft in the wild olive branch there, Gentile believers, grafted in among the Jewish believers, with the Jewish believers, partakest of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of all men, not just the Jewish people. And that's the key there in Romans eleven seventeen to how we, to how, to how non-Jewish believers can look at a verse like Hosea 13, 14, and you say, that promise is for me. That's for me. Why? Because I, being a wild olive branch, was grafted in among them and with them, and I partake along with them. So that's very, very important. And how does God ransom from the power of the grave? Well, that's a very, very important because it does say that. That verse says, I will ransom them from the power of the grave. Now, that word ransom is a, uh, is a word in Hebrew that means pada. Pada means to cut or to sever or to 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 uh, to to take away, so to speak. But it means to it sort of it brings the idea of breaking the power, severing the power. As a matter of fact, the word that's translated power there is really the word yad, which is hand. So what it says there is that I will sever from the hand. Thank you for joining us today. Now, as Tom Cantor was mentioning from Hosea, how he was trying to reach the Jewish nation and how God was going to redeem them from death, plagues, and destruction, would you like to reach out to a lost Jewish friend that you know of and tell them about how God wants to redeem them as well? Well, you can do that with a Tom Cantor testimony DVD and gift from Israel Restoration Ministries. It's a free gift that we give to lost Jewish people that we can give to you to give to them or that we can send directly to them by mail. So please call us today. Help us to reach God's lost Jewish nation of people, 1-800-247-3051. That's 1-800-247-3051. Or go to friendshipwithgod.org to learn more about Tom Cantor or reaching a lost Jewish person. You can also download free copies of today's message or previous messages at friendshipwithgod.org.